0: Well, good morning, Hillcrest. How y'all doing this morning? Yeah, it's been a long week, hasn't it? <laughs> and I think it's going to be a long month. We're praying for a lot of things this morning. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I think that's a noble thing for Western Christians to always remember. That we have brothers and sisters all over the world. We're a local church here at Hillcrest, but the church is more than just local As we learned in our Apostles' Creed study, it's also universal and we are connected by spiritual DNA to every Christian who populates the planet today. And when the Bible says, weep with those who weep, it means even for believers that you do not know and may never know this side of heaven. Today is also the Sunday before Veterans Day. And I'm thankful to live in a country where we can set apart a day to honor those who have served our country by wearing the uniform and uh, protecting our wonderful liberties that we enjoy so much. If you're a veteran here today, could we ask you to stand for just a moment? We love to recognize our veterans and say thank you. And we love you. Show them some love this morning. Amen. We love you. We thank God for you. And of course, as we remember those across the world who struggle because of their faith, we remember uh, those who are uh, serving us across the world, protecting our liberties so that we can sleep well uh, at night. So while we think of them, we think of all that's going on in our country today. Man, God is a mysterious God. We've been praying for our nation for like the last... I don't know how many days. We had a prayer guide that went 10 days. And you know what the most specific thing I was praying for? A clear result. A clear re- seriously, I pray God give us a clear result and for whatever reason. I mean God's a mysterious God. But I do know this, God is always working his plan in ways that I will never understand this side of heaven. And that's why we don't have to be afraid. Most of the division that's in our country today, frankly, is fear-driven. Everybody's living in fear right now, regardless of what side people may be on. But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. And that's because we know he's on his throne today. So, prayer guide notwithstanding, the time ran out on that, but the time hadn't run out to pray. And so we need to continue to pray. In fact, let's just do it right now before we even get started this morning. Father, we do come before you, and we just beseech your best blessing on us as a people. Before we even pray for ourselves, we once again pray for our brothers and sisters who um, almost never have a moment's peace because of their faith. It reminds us of so many in the first century church who just struggle constantly under the heat of religious oppression And, Father, we pray for those. We pray that we never have to experience that, that neither we nor our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren never have to directly know what that's like. But the times are perilous. And so we come before you this morning with hearts on bended knee, asking for you to continue to pour out your favor and protect our country in these important days that lay ahead. May, May there be peace, regardless of the outcome, And we pray, Father, for your divine will to be done and to be accomplished. Thank you for every veteran in our house today and for those who continue to serve us around the world. May they know that they are loved, valued, and very much appreciated. We will never forget the sacrifices that all of them have made uh, so that we could remain free. We love you, Lord. And now as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that your spirit would give us guidance and wisdom, change us that we might live for Jesus no matter what the condition is. In his wonderful name we pray and all God's people said, amen. We have a Bible with you this morning. Open it to the last book of the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi. If you don't know how to find it, just find the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. Hang an immediate left and you'll find the last book of the Old Covenant of God, which is the book of Malachi. And I'm very excited about these next seven or eight weeks at Hillcrest, we're going to dig deeply into one of the Bible's most important and indeed most overlooked books, and that is the book of Malachi. You know, it's the last book in the Old Testament. It's the last book of the Old Testament for a a very good reason. You know why? Because it was the last one written. How about that? It's worth the price of admission this morning. Happened very late in the old covenant period of God. As Malachi takes up his pen to write, Israel, the nation of Israel, is back into the land of promise. They'd been gone for some time. For some 150 years earlier, they were overpowered and taken into exile by the Babylonians. And then bit by bit, as God conquered the Babylonians and history saw the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire, bit by bit, the people of God began to make their way back into the land of promise. It began under the leadership of the governor Zerubbabel and then it continued through Ezra, Ezra the scribe and his ministry. Ezra shows up back in the land of promise and he leads the nation to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem that had been destroyed by the Babylonians under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. The pre- priesthood, the sacrificial system of worship had been reinstituted and re-established not long after the ministry of Ezra, Nehemiah follows, and he leads the people to rebuild the broken walls of the city, which were, of course, a terrible testimony and reflection on an awesome and powerful and holy God. It's not too long after that, with all of this in the given context, about 400 or so years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the prophet Malachi comes along to confront the nation who's in a real time of spiritual depression. Malachi 1.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So this Old Testament book, sometimes called an Old Testament prophecy for that's what it is, is referred to as an oracle here. You know what an oracle is? It's a specific word from God through a mediator. It's a specific word from God by Malachi to a specific people, namely the nation of Israel. The name Malachi is significant because it's a name that literally means my messenger. If we elongate the name into its more proper form, we get Malachiah, God's messenger. And that's exactly who the prophet is. The word translated oracle here is an interesting word in the Semitic Hebrew. It's a word that is often translated in other parts of the Bible as a burden. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. In other words, that message, that oracle was somewhat of a heavy burden load. Most of the messages of the Old Testament prophets were heavy loads now, weren't they? They were direct messages to the people who had started to coast downhill spiritually. And Malachi was no different than any of his other comrades who are called biblical prophets. The word of the Lord by Malachi was indeed a heavy load. And so we're subtitling this series, The Burden of Malachi, and let me just say for anybody that's done it, and I've been doing it now for going on 30 years, preaching the whole counsel of God takes a lot of courage, and it's often a, very much a burden. It's a load that the preaching prophet has to carry, and it's not always a light load. You know why? Because if you preach the whole counsel of God, you've got to confront sin you preach the whole counsel of God, you've got to speak the truth, whether the people like it or not. You preach the whole counsel of God, you've got to talk about the gospel, which is not one road among many to God, but an exclusive way to a relationship with God in a world that loves choices, not exclusivity. So preaching the good news of God's word is a joy, make no mistake about it, what a blessing to be able to give testimony to the Word of God. But preaching the whole counsel of God is what Adrian Rogers used to call a sweet agony. A sweet agony. It's both a blessing and a burden because it's often confrontational both to the lost and to the backslidden among the people of God. And this was the calling of Malachi. The burden of the Word of the Lord to Israel by the messenger of God a man named Malachi and you know by the time Malachi arrives on the scene he finds a a land that's spiritually and religiously cold the revival that had taken place under Ezra and Nehemiah and there's nothing to cause a buzz among God's people than a building program right everybody gets excited about building programs And Ezra had led a building program, and Nehemiah had led a building program, but now those are gone, and the people had fallen back into more traditional routines, and they'd grown cold. They'd grown into a time of spiritual complacency. Yeah, they had a temple, and yeah, they had a royal priesthood, and it was restored, and yes, the city had been rebuilt and was shining and glistening. But their spiritual life had grown cold. Their spiritual life had gone stale. They'd become jaded and cynical. And their worship had devolved into nothing more than routine and rote traditionalism, ritual. There was no joy in worship. There was no enthusiasm in worship. It was just cold and stale. And you know what their problem was? One word, say it out loud. The problem was what? Sin. Sin. Sin is always the culprit in the peoples of God's time of spiritual complacency. And Malachi cuts to the heart of it with the principle that serves as the title of our new series. This is the call. You know what Malachi says to the people summed up in one phrase. Here it is. Return to me. And that's the title of our series. This brief series in Malachi is all about the people of God being called to return to find life and enthusiasm and vitality by refreshing and renewing their relationship with a holy God. It's Malachi 3.7. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And to help bring the people back to a proper spiritual place, Malachi is going to hit hard some very heavy subjects. But he wisely begins by accentuating the positive. Right, Kind of like what we often do when we confront a friend or a loved one who's kind of missed the mark or gone off the way. Now, I know some people go in with both barrels blazing, but most of us like to soften the blow a little bit, and we'll accentuate some positive aspect of their life. And that's what Malachi does as he begins this prophecy. He reminds the people of something that they desperately needed to remember, something that they had forgotten, We're calling this message today a believer's greatest assurance. And we read about it from the first five verses of Malachi. Y'all ready to read? Say amen this morning. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the holy precious word of God. And all who agree with it say amen this morning. Now in this opening prologue to the book of Malachi, the prophet communicates three things that the people of God need desperately to remember about God and about themselves. And these are all things that are just as true for us in our times of spiritual complacency. These are things that we can often forget as well. The first is the simple truth that God unconditionally loves his people. How often we forget that when it comes to communicating difficult truth, tone matters. And Malachi sets a positive tone in an otherwise discouraging context when he says here in verse 2, The voice of God I have loved you says the Lord sometimes the first thing that we do when we know that people are in a mess we're prone to point out everything that they did wrong and there is a time to do that there's a time to speak the truth there's a time for constructive evaluation no question about it because there's no such thing as healing apart from truth isn't that right? People need to know the truth according to the word of God, but the first truth that people need to grasp in times like that is the twofold truth that you love them and that God loves them. That may be the most important thing people need to hear. For most of us, the first thing that we ever come to know in our Christian walk. The first thing we ever come to understand God from the time we are able to understand God in the plan of God is this simple truth. Jesus loves me. God loves me. It's among the first songs that as a child I ever learned. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And that's a truth straight from the Bible. 1 John 4 and 10, for example. In this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or consider the verse that most of you know by heart and among the first verses you ever memorized, maybe the very first one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the essence of who God is. God is love. And love's not just one of the choice identifying marks of the character of God. I mean, everything that God is and everything that God does springs from love as the principal core attribute of who God is. God is holy and God is Love. God reveals himself to us by his spirit and through his word and through his son. Why? Because he loves us. God teaches us by the spirit of God and by God appointed pastors and teachers and leaders in the church. Because he loves us. God disciplines us, which is sometimes called the negative side of love. The positive side of love is the blessing of God. The negative side of love is the discipline of God. But we could make a very simple argument that nothing is more positive than loving discipline in a person's life when they've gotten off course. And God disciplines us because he loves us. He guides us because he loves us. He redeems us because... He loves us. I'm just saying everything God does for us is grounded in his great love for us. And you need to be reminded of it. Or maybe if you're here this morning and you doubt the love of God, you need to know that God loves you. Regardless of who you are, regardless of where you've come from, regardless of what you've achieved, regardless of how far you've fallen, dare I even say it, regardless of who you voted for last Tuesday... The fact of the matter is, God made you, and God made you to love you. So if you're here lost and far from God, the principal purpose of the love of God and the revelation of the love of God is there to draw you close so that you might be saved. God wants you saved. He wants you to live in an eternal and everlasting relationship with him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish but have everlasting life. If you're a believer here this morning and you know God by faith, man, the love of God is a motivating compulsion. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5 that the love of God compels us. It constrains our behavior and it motivates us to Christian service. And this is very important because the love of God is an important reminder for believers Because we need to be motivated and inspired to worship God in spirit and truth, to serve God, to obey God in ways that bring Him honor and glory. And this is really critical because whenever you begin to doubt God's love for you, your love for God will soon grow cold. And when you stop loving God, you'll stop serving God. When you stop loving God, you'll begin to disobey God. You'll go your own way. You'll begin to make up your own rules. And you know what the end result of that is? A spiritual desert, that's what it is. You'll end up right where the nation of Israel ended up. You'll end up in a spiritual wilderness. That's what happened to them. In fact, God's love for the saved... Is especially motivational because, really, when you think about it, it's a different kind of love. God unconditionally loves His people, yes, but the second thing we learn from this passage is that God has sovereignly chosen His people. God's love for His people, those who live in a covenant community of faith based on faith, is what's sometimes called covenant love. The love of God is not a puppy love. It's not based on emotional highs or lows like so much of what we call love is today. I mean, our definition of love is often defined by Elvis and the Beatles. Isn't that right? And it's all about emotion. I'm in love. I'm all shook up. We talk about love as if it's just careless falling I've fallen in love like you've fallen off the road into a ditch somewhere that's emotional love That's not the kind of love that God loves his people with. God's love for us as a people of God is a determined, settled love. It's unqualified and it's unconditional. And a large part of Israel's trouble at the time of Malachi's writing stemmed from the fact that they had forgotten their history with God. They had forgotten their identity as children of God. They'd forgotten who they were. They were By the decree of God alone, the chosen, special, unique, called people of the living God. And you can tell their confusion by their response here in Malachi 1 and verse 2. Because the prophet no more gets out of his mouth. I have loved you, says the Lord of hosts. And the first thing they do is respond with the question, how have you loved us? Now that's what we call cynicism right there. You can almost hear the huh, can't you? How have you loved us? Now let's be real. If I go up to my wife when I get home from church today and kiss her on the back of the neck and say, honey, I love you. You know what I'm expecting. Baby, I love you too, right? If I kiss her on the back of the neck and say, honey, I love you. And she looks at me and says, how have you loved me? I have a, a pretty good inkling and I'm in a world of hurt. You know, my next question is what I do. No, the, the the people are skeptical of what they're hearing. And it's in large part because of their current situation. I mean, think about it. Yeah, they're back in the land, but their, their time of national glory is long gone. The kingdom has fallen far from the times of David and Solomon when they were the strongest Nation and people on the planet, that's all gone. The nation had lost its power, lost its influence. They were dependent on others for their welfare, and they lost their joy. Malachi was writing, by the way, about the year 420 B.C., but, you know, you would think he was writing in 2020 A.D. Because the circumstances were a lot of, I mean, just saying, there's nothing like a really bad year to make you question the love of God but it's there and it never leaves. And to remind them, Malachi gives them something of a history lesson here by reminding them, you are the very chosen people of God. Again, verse two, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, let me just say this morning, we don't have time to Plow very deeply on this subject today, but you need to be reminded that Israel was the people of God by God's divine choice. In other words, they didn't do anything to deserve it. They weren't the strongest nation. In fact, when God chose them, they weren't even a nation at all. So they had nothing to do with it. God had just set his love on them. He'd made a gracious, merciful decree. He'd sovereignly chosen them to be his. Now we call that in Christian theology, the doctrine of election. Last week, the doctrine of elections, plural. Now we're going back to the singular, the doctrine of election. And here's the thing. It began not with God so much choosing a people because they weren't even a people. The doctrine of election began with God choosing one man whose name was what? Abraham, who was a moon-worshiping pagan when God called him. And God turned his life around called him unto himself. So Abraham didn't do anything to deserve it. And God says, I'm calling you, and from your loins, I'm going to produce a wonderful progeny. You will be the father of what will become a great nation that will bring honor and glory to my name and bless the nations by your faithfulness. And after waiting for about 25 years, Abraham finally had the child of promise whose name was what? Isaac, that's right. Isaac would eventually perpetuate the line by bearing twins whose name were Jacob and Esau, actually the other way around because Esau was the older, Esau and Jacob. But the question then becomes which one of those two is going to be chosen to carry the covenant promises of God to the nation of Israel? Well, once again, that choice was made by a sovereign God merely by his grace because remember neither of these boys did anything now they both going to turn out to be something of scoundrels so they didn't bring anything to the table to earn it or deserve it my stars they were chosen by God or uh, Jacob was in the womb before they were ever born which was kind of counterintuitive wasn't a conventional choice because who was the older Esau, usually the blessing passed to the older of the two. Esau was the older. Esau would would be proven to be the more powerful, the more physical, the more warlike. But God is God, and God decreed the older will serve the younger. Paul has a lot to say about this in the New Testament in Romans 9. So when you get home this afternoon tonight, you may want to read Romans 9 because Paul's going to expand on this entire thing that Malachi just mentions here in Malachi 1. God chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau, and that's what's behind the statement. Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. Now, when you read the terms loved and hated, again, these are not terms that are packed with emotion. As we often define love and hate, the fact of the matter is, are y'all still with me say amen? God loved both those boys. He loved them both, but he loved them differently in that he chose one to continue the covenant line of the nation of Israel, and he didn't choose the other. And that's how you have to understand love and hate. It's used in a covenantal sense here. God chose one and he didn't choose the other. And the language here kind of implies that. It's kind of like what Jesus does in the New Testament when he says, you need to love me and you need to hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister. You remember that statement of Jesus? Is that to be a literally understood concept? No. By loving him and hating your father and mother, brother and sister, what you're really saying is I'm choosing to follow Jesus as Lord of my life, and I'm choosing not to follow you as Lord of my life. You see the difference? So it's not an emotional love or an emotional hate that's at play here. These are covenant terms. God loves everybody in the whole world. But here's the thing, and this is somewhat difficult for a lot of people to grasp. God doesn't love everybody exactly the same, and neither do you. I can assure you, I don't love you like I love Miss Judy. It's not the same. And I'm pretty sure you don't love me like you love your spouse. At least I hope you don't. I don't love Judy like I love my kids. It's different. And you don't love the person to whom you're married in the same way that you love the person who's taking your bill at the restaurant this afternoon at Lunch. God loves everybody Yes But he has a special Unique kind of love For his people That's different And that was true for Israel Back then and can I say it today It's true for his church today The new covenant people Of God Those who belong to that wonderful group that God calls the church. And the Bible says that, 1 Peter 2 in verse 9. But you, those of you saved by faith in Jesus Christ, you the church of the living God, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oftentimes the biggest hit on the doctrine of election concerns this idea of fairness. Well, that just isn't fair. How many times do I have to say it? Do you really want God to be fair with you? You see, the truth be known, this is better than fair because the fact of the matter is, last time I checked, everybody in the whole world, past, present, and future, is a sinner and everybody deserves to be judged and obliterated into an eternity called hell. That, brothers and sisters, would be fair because we've all offended God. It's a miracle that God would save just one person. What's fair is judgment. Now, when it comes to the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and salvation, books have been written about that. i tell you what I know. Here's what I know. Y'all still with me? Amen. I'm not smart enough to figure that out, and neither are you. That much I know. There's a tension there, and we have to live with the tension. I don't know how all that pans out. I'm not God, and I. you know what? That's a matter of God's eternal sovereignty. But this much I do know. Here's what I know. If you've heard the gospel, and through the hearing of the gospel, you've been convicted of your sin... And in response to the conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit, you respond to the gospel with repentance and faith, and you commit your life to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. I'll tell you what, you can know without any doubt that God has chosen you and that God has set his covenant love on you. In fact, that's the only way to know. The Bible never says try to figure out whether you're one of the chosen. What the Bible says is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what the Bible says says the question is have you done that how do I know I'm one of the elect that's the only way to know believe on the Lord Jesus Christ trust Jesus to save you and forgive you of your sins and you can know that you're a recipient of this incredible covenant love of God and the icing on the cake is that there's are host of blessings for those who embrace the love of God, live in the light of God's unconditional, unqualified love. Y'all with me so far? Say amen. God unconditionally loves his people. God has sovereignly chosen his people. And then finally, God supernaturally cares for his people. Somebody say amen this morning. We're reminded of that every time we read or recite the first statement of the 23rd Psalm. Say it together with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not, I shall not want. When God saves a people, God obligates Himself to meet the needs of that people. Now let me be crystal clear. Regardless of what your favorite television preacher says, God is not obligated to make you financially rich or wealthy. That's promised nowhere in the Bible. But God does promise to meet your needs. Like the old preacher said, not your greeds, but your needs. Amen. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And that's a demonstration of the covenant love of God to his people. In Israel's case, the care or the blessing of God for His covenant people was to protect them from their enemies. At least that's what's mentioned here. Look at verse 3. I have laid waste his Esau's hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. Nobody uses the word jackal anymore, by the way. I don't know what happened to jackals. Are Are they still a thing or are they all gone now? The jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now remember, Malachi's answering the question posed by the heart of the people. How has God loved us? And in response to that question, he not only reminds them of their identity, who they are, he reminds them of the promises of God. He reminds them of the action of God, what God has done. Namely, that God had supernaturally preserved them. And not only had God preserved them in their time of exile, in their time of scattering, God had brought them back and resettled them in the land. He'd restored them to their rightful place in the land. But God hadn't done that to the Edomites. The Edomites had gotten scattered as well. The Edomites had been driven out of their hill country as well. And the Edomites, of course, were the descendants of Esau. The Israelites were the descendants of Jacob. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Both Esau and Edom come from a root Hebrew word that means red. Red. And they were judged and scattered, but here's what God says. You were judged and scattered, but I preserved and protected you, and I brought you back. They were judged and scattered, but they ain't coming back. And virtually nobody who doesn't read the Bible is going to remember a thing about them anymore. And the people say, well, what if they try to rebuild? God says, don't be worried or concerned if they try to rebuild because if they try to rebuild, I'll come in right behind them and I'll rip it all down, tear it to the ground. And just think how true God has remained to that promise. Last time I checked, Israel is still a major player in the world today, even though they're small. Major player. But try as you might, Can you pinpoint to me where the Edomite kingdom is on a world map today? It's not there. We wouldn't know a thing about the Edomites except for one thing, and that is their biblical connection to Israel. The only reason we know anything about them. And the point Malachi is trying to make here to Israel is here's the thing your past is pretty much just as blackened as theirs. You've dishonored God. You've profaned God. You have abused God. And you would have gone exactly the same way as the Edomites, except for one thing, the unconditional, unqualified, abiding love of the living God who chose you. Instead of sitting around moaning and counting your curses you need to gather around and rejoice and count your blessings because once you understand who God is and what you understand what God has done for you in spite of what you've done in the face of God Man, the end result of that should be eternal praise to God. And Malachi points that out in verse 5. What you should be doing is singing as loud as you can. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Great is the Lord. His mercy endures forever. Several years ago, a friend of mine was leading a Bible study on a Christian cruise. And they didn't have the whole ship, but they had part of the rooms of the ship for part of the day, and they were having a Bible study in a room that was generally used as a bar. And that afternoon, about the time they were wrapping up their Bible studies, the bartenders all came in and, and uh, started to do some busy work behind the bar, waiting for the evening to commence so they could make some money. And my friend who was leading the Bible study finished and his sister who was there providing the music began to sing uh, the old contemporary song simply titled, God Loves You. It's a beautiful rendition and she had a beautiful voice. And that was the conclusion of this particular time of, of Bible study for that day. And at one point... As my pastor friend was standing aside, listening to his sister sing this beautiful song, God Loves You, he turned around and he looked and one of the bartenders, a female bartender was standing behind the bar and she was noticeably weeping. And he goes up to talk to her, even in the middle of the song. And she told him, you know, my mother was a Christian and she tried to get me to become a Christian, but... I kind of did the church thing for a while but never really believed and bottom line was she'd wandered far from the faith and as they talked, she said to my friend, I was just listening to that song but I have to tell you, I'm just not sure that God really loves me. My friend shared the gospel with her from the other side of the bar. Can I have an amen? From the other side of the bar. He began to share the gospel. And after just a few minutes, 15, 20 minutes of sharing the gospel, which she had heard before, right there under the neon beer sign, that young woman prayed to receive Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. She became convinced that God really did love her, and she gave her heart to Jesus. And you know what happened when she did? She became an eternal part of the family of God. How has God loved us? You know, there's really a simple answer to that question. The simple answer to the question, how has God loved me, is simply this. I'll tell you how you can know. Jesus Christ and his cross. That's how you know. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, I'm just here to tell you this morning. It's simple, but it's profound. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It demonstrates without a doubt the eternal, unqualified, unconditional, unmerited love of God for his people. And that is a believer's greatest assurance.